God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We who believe in freedom can never rest. We who believe in freedom largely unsung hero of the civil rights freedom movement, who inspired and guided emerging leaders. We sang those words in Monument Square last fall for the rally for Black Lives Matter. And we are here today remembering Ella Baker and all those who struggled for civil rights. Not because their mission is accomplished, and black lives matter in our society just as much as white lives matter. But we are here today at the urging of our African Methodist brothers and sisters because racism is still alive and well in the United States. We know this is true more than we have for a long time. Not because racism came back to life in 2014, but because the discrimination and violence that black people in the United States experience has become more public. And we have witnessed through media coverage the killing of Michael Brown, Eric Gardner, Tamir Rice, and many others, all in the past year. And a movement to declare that black lives do matter grew from the streets of Ferguson and New York City to the cities and towns all across this country. It feels like we have ripped off the infected bandage off a festering wound. My hope and prayer, along with yours, I hope, is that this time in our history as a nation can heal wounds that have either been fully apparent or just under the surface since the time of slavery in our country. The massacre in Charleston of nine black people by a white young man opened further, even further this wound for all to see. We have separated ourselves from one another 
and there is fear and hatred that can easily come to dwell in that separation. So today, we are going to talk about the place in which we find ourselves, and commit as a people to move forward to reconciliation and justice for all. And as we begin to reflect together, I'd like you to read you some words from Scripture, Maybe some favorite words from scripture, and they may be familiar to you, but even if you have read them recently, I'd like you to hear them with new ears. And as you listen, I'd like you to listen for a message for you and for me as to how we think about one another, and how we even think about those we don't yet know those who we believe are different from us, and maybe even those of whom we are afraid. From 1 John, in the fourth chapter, beginning with, with verse 17. God is love. When we take up permanent residence in a life of love, we live in God, and God lives in us. This way, love has run of the house, becomes at home and mature in us, so that we are free of worry on Judgment Day. Our standing in the world is identical with Christ's. There is no room in love for fear. Well-formed love banishes fear. Since fear is crippling, a fearful life, fear of death, fear of judgment, is one not yet fully formed in love. We, though, are going on to love. Love and be loved. First, we were loved. Now we love. He loved us first. If anyone boasts, I love God, and goes right on hating his brother or sister, thinking none of it, nothing of it, he is a liar. If he won't love the person he can see, how can he love God? The command we have from Christ is blunt. Loving God includes loving people. You've got to love both. You've got to love both. So how do we love people? How do we love people who are default them as different than we are? How do we love people that we've been taught to be afraid of? John A. Powell, the author of Racing to Justice, Transforming Our Concepts of Self and Other to Build an Inclusive Society, 
says that in order to move beyond the current culture of racism in our society, we need to understand and confront what divides us from one another and leads us to judge one another. In the 80s, we thought we could move beyond race. We thought that categorizing people wasn't necessary. But today, we understand the way the brain works and that categorizing is the way we make sense of the world. People are, in fact, distinct from one another. We have histories, we each have histories that are connected to a larger history. It doesn't have to limit us, but it has to be recognized. We are a country made up of racial groups, and we assume various things about various groups because of the things that we have been told about these groups and the messages that we continue to tell one another. Our history of race relations in this country was transformed by the history of slavery. Through the persecution of one Though the persecution of one ethnic group over another began before that, from the moment that Europeans landed on the shores of America. Slavery has lasting effects, even though it has been outlawed since the end of the Civil War. <coughs> Toni Morrison, the author and wise woman that she is, made this observation. She said that we've had all of these studies on what the institution of slavery has done to mark the black identity. But what we need to look at is what it's done to mark the white identity. These words challenge me. How have I been shaped by slavery? How has the white, my white privilege been assumed ever since and even before people with dark skin were owned by people with light skin? It's hard to think about. Those of us who identify as white have a greater responsibility because we have the privilege of being able to see our lives without paying any attention to racism. Our brothers and sisters who identify as black and brown have no choice. They have to live with this reality every day. The blogger Yawo Brown explained in a difficult to hear but clear way, the definition of racism that I'd like to share with you. Racism and prejudice are not interchangeable. Racism is the systemic oppression of one group of people who can be categorized within a certain phenotypical traits over multiple generations that has been, at one point, sanctioned by a country the majority and or ruling class. 
Racism is committed only by the ruling class and agents of the ruling class because they have the power that comes with racism. Yawa Brown names that this racism is lived out in our society in three ways, and he calls it polite white supremacy. PWS. And when I read these three three in key ingredients of polite white supremacy, I hear an uncomfortable truth in them. Based on all that I have been learning and hearing and observing over the past year or so. So the three key ingredients of polite white supremacy are comfort, control, and confidentiality. First to comfort. He says, whites who participate in polite white supremacy desire to be comfortable in all settings while maintaining some influential level of control over all situations without acknowledging this power. I know that this is true in the process of integrating schools. White parents didn't like to be made uncomfortable by the presence of black students in their kids' schools. The same can be said for neighborhoods. There are a lot of things and times, churches, yeah, that white people like to be comfortable. Control. Polite white supremacy controls the narrative and perception by controlling language itself. Even the words that are used to refer to the young men who were killed by the police and those who were protesting their deaths were negative. For example, thug, rioters, criminals. When Dylan Roof shot 10 people in Charleston in a church and killed nine of them after meeting with them for their Bible study, rather than referring to him as a criminal or a thug or a terrorist, the default was to talk about his mental illness. To make an excuse for why he would do something like this, rather than to label a young white male as inherently negative. If only we could be as gracious to those with our Confidentiality is the glue holding this whole charade in place. Because polite white supremacy can't exist out in the open as, an, as overt white supremacy, not because it's wrong, but because it's unfashionable to be an open white supremacist in today's society. Being a confidentially racist has brought us this far after slavery and after the civil rights movement 
with the wound of racism still gaping and infected. We know what we shouldn't say out loud. We still think it and believe it and act on it, but we don't say it Racism will not disappear quickly or quietly because the damage that has been done has taken centuries. But you and I can take steps to be honest and to reach out to one another even when it makes us vulnerable. Even when it makes us uncomfortable, out of control, and totally public in our confrontation of racism. John A. Powell says there is hope. I think most people, white, black, Latino, and otherwise, would like to see something different. We just don't know how to do it. And we've been so entrenched in the way, of, the way things are. It's hard to imagine the world being different. But we are living differently in small ways and in large ways. I think our kids and young people are crossing racial lines in their relationships more than ever before. If you drive by King Middle School, there are kids who don't, a circle of children who looks like a Benetton Anybody remember a Benetton commercial? I'm dating myself. <laughs> a rainbow. And the same is true downtown. Kids from Portland High. Even though people still hang out most of the time with people who look like them, they are in relationship and in respect with one another. And it's beautiful that we live in a place where that happens more easily. Things that divide us no longer have to. There's one last piece of evidence to give you hope. Do you know what the fastest growing demographic in the United States is? Yeah, that's what you're supposed to say, right? That's what I thought. But the fastest growing demographic in the United States is actually interracial and inter-ethnic couples. That is evidence that the things that have divided us no longer happen. That gives me hope. If we are willing to embrace love and banish if we are willing to be brave, maybe be afraid, the world can change. So there's a question that I would like you to ponder. And it's a way of being honest and of moving from one reality to another reality. And the question is, what story have you been told so many times about the other that you came to believe 
that you came to believe it, even though you now know it's not true. For example, when we see images over and over again of black men committing crimes, in both the news and in movies and in television, we come to believe that the majority of criminals are black men and the majority of black men are criminals. That is a story that we have been told over and over again. But I now know that is not true. Does anybody have an example? Muslims are terrorists. Muslims are terrorists. Parents of children in our schools don't speak English. Parents of immigrant children in our schools don't speak English. Mexicans are rapists and killers. Mexicans are rapists. Mm. Minorities are the predominant um, users of the Medicaid and other federal yeah. systems. to know that we do not need to be afraid. And that we struggle with the same things. And that we have privilege when we believe that no one is different than us or that everyone is different. Let's be honest with one another so that we can be those who believe in freedom and love and will not rest until it comes and is shared. Amen. We are going to share together in a litany that came to us through the National Council of Churches through from our African Methodist um, Episcopal brothers and sisters. So 
So I invite those of you who are sharing that with us to speak and for all of us to listen to these powerful words 